As you head back to your seats, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Judges chapter 16. Judges chapter 16, give you a second to get to your seat. For those of you who are visiting with us, my name is Pastor Michael. I'm privileged to serve as the lead pastor uh, here at Newbreed Church. We have four pastors total, including myself, so thankful for the leadership um, that God has allowed this church to have. We are in the midst of a series right now through the book of Judges. We're actually coming to the end of it. We've got just a couple sermons left. It's a series through the book of Judges entitled Broken Leaders and God's Unbroken Promise. And we have spent the past couple weeks looking at Samson, and we're going to finish Samson's story this morning as we consider again this idea of broken leaders and God's unbroken promise. We're going to be looking at the entirety of chapter 16. I'm not going to read into your hearing the whole chapter here on the front end, but I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's Word as we read Judges chapter 16. And I just want to read into your hearing verses 28 through 31. Judges 16 verses 28 through 31. Hear what the author writes. Speaking of Samson, he said, He called out to the Lord, Lord God, please Remember me. Strengthen me, God, just once more with one act of vengeance. Let me pay back the Philistines from my two eyes. Samson took hold of the two middle pillars supporting the temple, and he leaned against them, one on his right hand and the other on his left. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all his might, and the temple fell on the leaders and all the people in it. And those he killed at his death were more than those he killed in his life. Verse 31, then his brothers and all his father's family came down, carried him back, and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of his father Manoah. So he judged Israel 20 years. And this morning, I want us to think about this idea of light in the darkness. Light in the darkness. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father. God, we thank you that you are a God who has communicated to us. You have revealed yourself through your word. And God, I pray that you will take my feeble attempts to proclaim your word to your people and you will use them to do mighty things. God, I ask for physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people for we are ready to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Light. In the darkness. Nyctophobia is something that most of us have experienced to some degree or another in our lifetime. It's defined as the fear of the dark. For most of us, as we were growing up, we likely experienced some degree of nyctophobia. It's common. If we're honest, for some of us as adults, we might still struggle with a little bit of that phobia. But for most of us as children, we, we experience a little bit of fear of the dark. And like many children, perhaps you as a child or your own children, my children are no exception. You know, my kids are getting older. They're not in here. They're back in Newbury Kids. At some point, I'm going to have to stop telling stories about them, but they're not here, so I'm going to go for it today. 
My parents, my, my, not my parents, they might be afraid of the dark, sorry. My children are afraid of the dark. They don't like their room dark at all. They, they don't like to go to sleep in the dark. And so we as parents, myself and Aaliyah, have tried to ease that fear. One of my children in particular, I won't tell you which one, if you know them, you can probably figure it out. Uh, she hates being in the dark more than, than anything. And so this has made bedtime particularly difficult for us as parents. And so in an attempt to ease her fear, we did what most parents do or have done. We got a nightlight for her. A nightlight that was right by her so she would have a little light to make it through the night. And she was so excited to use that nightlight. And Ali and I were so excited because we were expecting one of those nights with undisturbed sleep. But it did not take long before I heard a familiar sound. Dad, dad, it's always dad in the middle of the night, dad. So I got up and I went to see what was going on. When I walked into the room, the first thing I heard was, dad, it's too dark. That surprised me a little bit. I'll be honest, it surprised me. Because you see, the nightlight we had gotten her was right by her. I could see her all lit up because of the nightlight. And so I said to her, babe, you you have a nightlight. And she said, I know, but it's still dark over there. And she pointed to the corner of her room near the closet where the light from the nightlight was unable to reach. And so I tried to explain it to her, right? Like, that's my brain. Rational brain said, well, well, here's the thing, baby. The the nightlight is only supposed to give you a little bit of light. It's not supposed to be super bright. We don't want it to look like it's daytime or else you won't be able to go to sleep. And little did I know at the time, but my scared little child preached to me. And she said, well, it's not a good light then because there's still darkness. See, what she realized on a basic physical level is what we as Christians often forget on a spiritual level. What good is light? if it can't affect the darkness. And as I thought about this, I began to reflect on Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 5 where he says to his followers, you are the light of the world. And then in Matthew 5, 15, and no one lights a lamp and puts puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In essence, what Jesus is teaching in Matthew chapter 5 when he says this, is that we are meant to shape the darkness around us. The darkness is not meant to shape us. But the question remains, what happens when your light is too weak? And see, in this final installment of Samson's story, we read a story that tells us what happens when a little light meets the full darkness of night. So let me walk through this text this morning and try to show you. We've looked at Samson for the past two weeks. He is the final major judge recorded in the book. He's the final judge recorded in the book. And chapter 13 is where we began our story. And it was an entire chapter dedicated just to the birth narrative of Samson. And we learned that Samson from the beginning was to be set apart for the Lord. He was to, he was to uphold a Nazarite vow to be sacred, consecrated, and set apart for the Lord from death to birth. He is one of three individuals in the Bible who has a Nazarite birth from death or from birth to death. Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist. But as we encounter Samson in chapter 14 and 15, we see a man wrestling with God. 
Samson wanting the things of this world, but the Spirit of God literally pushing him and compelling him into another direction. And despite sin and struggle, the plan of God is not thwarted as the Spirit of God empowers Samson to overcome Israel's enemies in some pretty dramatic ways, but none quite as dramatic as we will see today. Even though throughout chapters 14 and 15, Samson experienced loss. We talked about it last, last week, that sin will not stop a sovereign God from accomplishing His will. And God still accomplishes everything He set out to accomplish. And so we pick up here in chapter 16 and we learn in verses 1 through 3, honestly, that not much has changed with Samson. The author records that Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute and he went to bed with her. And when the Gazites heard that Samson was there, they surrounded the place and waited in ambush for him all the night at the city gate. They kept quiet all night saying, let's wait until dawn, then we will kill him. But Samson stayed in the bed only until midnight. Then he got up, took hold of the doors of the city gate along with the two gate posts and pulled them out bar and all. He put them on his shoulders and took them to the top of the mountain overlooking Hebron. So once again, as we begin chapter 16, we see Samson being driven by what he sees. This is similar to how his story began in chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, where it says Samson went down to Timnah and he saw a young Philistine woman there. He went back and told his father and his mother, I have seen a young Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife. Even at the very beginning of Samson's story, we see Samson driven by what he sees. And towards the end of Samson's life, in chapter 16, we see him once again. Again, driven by what he sees in the things of this world. Samson is driven by sight and not by faith. But what's interesting about these introductory three verses is that there's a lot of details left out. Like as I read these first three, once again, I told you with Samson, I seem to have more questions than I have answers. So I'm just going to try to preach the answers to you, okay? But there were more questions that I had. For example, we don't know why he went to Gaza in the first place. It's one of the five major Philistine cities and most likely the most significant at the time. He would have known that he wasn't popular among the Philistines. The dude just killed a thousand people with a jawbone. Like they're out to get him, but he goes to one of the major cities of the Philistines anyway. We don't know how the Gazites heard that Samson was there in the first place. We don't know what drove Samson to leave this prostitute in the middle of the night rather than waiting for morning, thus allowing him to avoid the Gazites altogether. We don't know what compelled Samson to even pull these city gates down along with the gate posts and carry them up a mountain. The Bible doesn't tell us why he did any of this. But the author is trying to tell us something. He's trying to tell us two things as he sets the stage for the remainder of Samson's story. First, he's trying to tell us that God will not fail to deliver on his promises. Let me show you what I mean. Samson, potentially unbeknownst to him, is acting as a physical picture of God's promises in Genesis chapter 22. Do do you remember Genesis chapter 22? Y'all are looking at me like you're dead. You got to answer me. Uh, do, do you remember Genesis chapter 22? You say no. No, thank you, sis. Amen. Honesty. That's the story of Abraham. Not, not Abraham and Isaac. Not, not the birth narrative. It's the hard part of the story. 
When God asks Abraham to do the unthinkable with his son. When God tells Abraham to take his son of promise, the one that was promised to him, this miraculous birth, and God says, take him to the land of Moriah. You pick a mountain. I don't care which one. It's just got to be in Moriah. Go up to the top of it and sacrifice your son. So what does Abraham do? He gets up early in the morning. He loads the donkey with everything needed for a sacrifice except one thing, an animal. They travel for three days. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, try to put yourself in the story. I know we read it. As a father, God says, go take your son, this one who is, who is a miraculous birth, right? Your, your wife was too old to bear children, but I allowed her to give you, I, I allowed her to bear you a son. And I want you to take him three days journey and go sacrifice him on the top of a hill. Can you imagine Abraham's mind as he walks for three days knowing what's at the other end? But he does it. So he took the wood, he took his son, saw the mountain, he walked up the mountain. The Bible tells us that Abraham took the wood and laid it on his son to carry up the mountain, the sacrifice carrying the instrument of his death. Abraham carried a knife in one hand and the Bible says in fire in the other. And Isaac says to the father, can you imagine hearing this? The fire and the wood are here, dad. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? In Genesis 22, verse 8, Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Then the two of them walked on together. They arrived at the place. Abraham built an altar. He bound his son and placed him on the altar. And the Bible says this in Genesis 22, verses 10 through 12. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He replied, here I am. Then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your only son from me. See, we know the end of the story. And so it's like, man, that's amazing. Abraham would have killed his son because God said to. But what does God do? He provides a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. Why? So that it was unblemished and spotless. To take the place of Isaac as the sacrifice. But we stop there normally. But here's what I'm getting at. A few verses later, watch this. The promise from God. Genesis 22 verse 17. Here it is. I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Listen, listen. Your offspring will possess the city gates of your enemies. And the author of Judges is trying to communicate something to us with Samson. God is using Samson to paint a physical picture of a spiritual promise. As Samson literally possesses the gates of the enemies, he takes them and rips them from the doorpost and carries them up a mountain. And so for anyone who remembered the promise of God in Genesis 22, this is a powerful picture. But the second thing that the author is trying to communicate through these introductory verses is not only that the Lord remembers his promises, not only is he faithful to deliver, but that the Lord will accomplish this with his own strength. Notice this. Samson's not carrying a small fence post. The gates to the cities were upwards of one to two tons in weight. That's 2,000 to 4,000 pounds. So clearly, once again, 
Samson is being empowered by the Spirit of God. This is no mere human feat of strength. No human can do this. And so we're faced again with the same dichotomy that we had to wrestle with last week. You have this picture of Samson, a judge who was supposed to be an example to Israel of what they should be as God uses him to deliver. And yet he is once again pursuing what he sees with his own eyes. And yet God uses him to be an instrument through which God's power can be made known. The author is trying to tell us this. God keeps his promises. And he has the power all by himself to back it up. Can I tell you this morning, church? Whether you realize it or not, that's good news for Israel. And that's good news for you. Because though Christ has come, though he has conquered sin, death, and the grave, and all of God's promises find their yes in Christ, there are some of those promises that we just haven't realized yet. We live in what is known as the already not yet, meaning Christ has already won, but we have not yet experienced the full measure of that victory. We still live in a world that is broken with sin. It's broken with sickness and death. It's broken with evil powers and evil people. There are sorrows of the soul and pain that we have experienced in this life that we would not wish on our worst enemies. And if we are honest, it is easy to get discouraged. And in our discouragement, we are tempted to look for hope in places other than the promises of God. Yeah, you don't have to say amen. I know it's true because I get the phone calls from you. I know that we are tempted in the midst of discouragement to look for hope in places other than the promises of God. We are tempted to place our hope in our own ability, but just ask Adam. It didn't work. He wasn't skilled enough in his ability to cover his own sin and shame. We're tempted to place our hope in our achievements But ask Paul, he was the Pharisee among Pharisees, and for all of his achievement, it wasn't sufficient enough. We are tempted to place our hope in our families and friends, but just ask Job. Sometimes the best they have to offer is not enough. None of these things can give us the hope that we need, but what the author of this text is trying to declare is that there is a God who remembers his promise, and not only does he remember his promises, but he has the power to see him through all by himself. The author looks back over 600 years to the promise made to Abraham and reveals the sweet truth that God has never forgotten. What I'm trying to tell you is that God may take his time in bringing this thing to completion, but he will not fail to deliver. And if we are going to put our hope in anything, We need to place it in the God who never forgets and always delivers. But can I just add this? It wasn't wasn't necessarily in my notes, but don't forget that this reminder of God's promise is made not to people who are diligently seeking after him. It's not to those who are in the midst of trial and the midst of persecution, and yet they are somehow holding fast to his name. God reminds a sinful people with a sinful judge that even when they have turned their back on God, God will not turn his back on them. There should, there should be at least a couple of us that get excited with that prospect. That God will not leave you even when you sin. Listen to me. You will run out of sin before God will run out of grace. And that should, that should give us a little bit of encouragement that when we are faithless, he is faithful because he cannot deny himself. What a thought. You can sin to the, to, to the ends of the earth and God's grace is greater still. He will never fail to deliver on his promise. And here's the thing. He's never needed you to be faithful to accomplish his promises. 
So the author here in the introduction is trying to get us to see at the front end that if anything of good is going to happen, God's going to do it. And God's going to do it all by himself. And so after verse 3, then there's a break in the story. And the author picks up in verse 4 and he says this, sometime later, so we don't know if it's days, we don't know if it's months, we don't know if it's years. Sometime later, after, after Samson ripped the gates off the post, took the post, carried them up to the mount overlooking Hebron. Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman named Delilah who lived in the Sorek Valley. And the Philistine leaders went to her and said, persuade him to tell you where his great strength comes from so we can overpower him, tie him up and make him helpless. And each of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Now, we have to pause here. If you know any of the story of Samson, it's likely this part of the story. Uh, This is the part we tell in children's church. This is the part we love, right? Samson, this dude, he fails, but in the end, he gets his strength back, pushes over the walls. Some of you are like, I didn't know it was the ending. Okay, well, read ahead, all right? Pushes over the walls, come down, he wins, everybody dies, right? Makes for a great kid story. It's kind of twisted, but whatever. But in this, there's so much detail in this story that we can often overlook. Let me try to explain it to you. So Samson falls in love with Delilah. Now, we often attribute Delilah to being among the Philistines. That's how I've always heard it taught, but the Bible never actually says her ethnicity. It says that she lives in the Sorek Valley, and so it leaves it somewhat ambiguous because the Sorek Valley is the valley that borders the Philistines on one side and the Israelites from the tribe of Dan on the other, and you got the Canaanites right by them. So Delilah could have been a Philistine. She could have been a Canaanite. She could have even been an Israelite. We don't know, and the author doesn't see it necessary to tell us because what is of interest is her name as it relates to Samson's name. You see, Samson's name means little son, S-U-N, son. A little light, a little son. Where Delilah, her name seems to play on the words with Samson's name. And in Hebrew, Delilah's name contains the letters for the Hebrew word night. It also sounds like it. See, one commentator notes this. He says, no reader of the Hebrew, however, could miss the oral resonance or the sound when you're reading it out loud between Delilah's name and the Hebrew word for night, Layla, which appears four times in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 16. And this juxtaposition of names is about to give us somewhat of a glimpse as to what happens. It forces us to ask the question, what happens when a little light meets the full darkness of night? It reminds me of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14, do not be yoked together with those who do not believe for what partnership is there between righteousness and and lawlessness or what fellowship does light have? have with darkness you know that light and darkness cannot coexist one will always win out go back to my child in her bedroom there was a little light but the darkness won there's no middle ground there's not we know that light and darkness cannot coexist Either the light is strong enough to drive out the darkness or the darkness will consume the light. And so the stage is set and in a sense, the ending is already predicted. So what happens? Well, verse 5, 
The Philistine leaders went to her and said, persuade him to tell you where his great strength comes from so we can overpower him, tie him up and make him helpless. Each of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. We don't know how many leaders there are, but each of them willing to give 1,100 pieces of silver to Delilah. We don't know if Delilah was a Philistine, a Canaanite, or an Israelite, but we do know she had enough of a relationship with the Philistines that the leaders could come to her and say, hey, tell us where his strength comes from, and we will pay you a lot of money. And so in verses 6 through 14, what we read is Delilah's attempts to get Samson to tell her the source of his strength. But at the start, Samson begins to play with her a little bit. And first he says this, he says, listen, if you tie me up with seven fresh bowstrings that have never been dried, I will lose my strength. So she ties him up just like he says, while he's asleep. And while he's asleep, she yells out, the Philistines are here. He hops up, he snaps the bowstrings. So she gets upset and says, you're mocking me. So she tries again. She says, tell me the source of your strength. So Samson this time says, if you tie me up with ropes that have never been used, then I'll lose my strength. So he's asleep. She ties him up with ropes that have never been used. She does the same thing again. The Philistines are here. He hops up, snaps the ropes that have never been used. Once again, Delilah, frustrated. She goes to him again. You're mocking me. You're mocking me. Tell me the source of your strength. This time he gets a little bit closer to the truth. It's a dangerous game. And he says, if you weave the seven braids of my head into the fabric on a loom, And some translations add, and you pin it to the wall. And getting close to the source of his strength here. He says, then I'll lose my strength. So once again, she does it while he sleeps. She says, the Philistines are here. He jumps up, pulls his hair right out the wall. She's frustrated again. Now we have to pause here for just a minute. Because the question that I have as I read this is, why is Samson still with her? Right? Right? Now, some of y'all are quick to say amen, but you've been there too. You know good and well you should have left that person a long time ago. It's a different sermon. But why is Samson with her? Like, that's what I'm, three times, three times she tries to get him, and he's still there. Now, to some degree, we have to acknowledge that the text is a little bit unclear. Here's what I mean. Either Delilah yells out, the Philistines are here, and Samson frees himself and just does work on all of them, or most likely, Delilah yells that and they stay hidden because they want to see how he will respond before they try to ambush him. The Bible doesn't tell us which one it is. It's most likely that they never actually came out. But either way, It's a problem. Here's what I mean. Either Samson is so confident in himself that he is willing to remain in a potentially dangerous situation he knows about, or he's so blind that he doesn't even realize that he's in a dangerous situation. And both are equally destructive. And both have a lesson for us. You see, often when it comes to our sin, we fall into one of those same two scenarios. Either we know that we are flirting with disaster by keeping our sin near, but we are so confident in our ability to overcome it that we fail to see the devastation that is coming, or 
We are so blinded by the things of this world. Like Samson, we're so blinded for our, with our love for the things of this world that we don't even realize sin is at the door. But I would be remiss this morning if I did not caution you once again that sin is not something to play with. It's not. Like there are people in this room right now, you know you are playing with some sin. And it needs to be cut out. Right? Jesus said it is better for you to enter heaven blind and lame than to enter in with two good hands, two good eyes, and no soul because you ain't going to make it. Cut it out. Cut it off. That's Jesus' response. And this situation reminds us, and I don't want you to miss this, that evil is always active. While Samson sleeps, Delilah is working for his demise. It reminds us again of what Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 8. He says, be sober-minded, be alert, because you're alert, your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. And while you sleep, he doesn't. But praise God, we have a God who does not slumber. And see, what Samson reminds us of is that walking by sight and loving the things of this world will blind you to the danger of of sin and unfortunately Samson will have to learn the hard way that sin always overpromises and underdelivers always so look at what happens in verse 15 she says it's different this time now she doesn't just say you've mocked me she says how can you say i love you she told him when your heart is not with me this is the third time you have mocked me and not told me what makes your strength so great. Notice this. This is the same thing Samson fell for with his Philistine wife in Timnah in chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 16. So Samson's wife came to him weeping and said, you hate me and don't love me. You told my people the riddle, but haven't explained it to me. Look, he said, I haven't even explained it to my father and mother. Why should I explain it to you? And then he goes on and he does explain it to her. In both situations, his wife and Timnah and Delilah feed off of his real love for the things of this world. See, this is what Peter is getting at when he says, be sober-minded, think clearly. I don't know, when I'm thinking about Samson, like Samson's been in this situation before and it didn't turn out well for him and you think he would learn, but it was the great theologian Albert Einstein, he's not theologian who said insanity is doing the same thing twice and expecting different results. Well, here we go again. Verse 16. Because she nagged him day after day and pleaded with him until she wore him out. I'm not going to make a joke this week with that. He told her the whole truth and said to her, my hair has never been cut because I am a Nazarite to God from birth. Here it is. If I am shaved, my strength will leave me. And I will become weak and like any other man. When Delilah realized that he had told her the whole truth, she sent the message to the Philistine leaders, come one more time, for he has told me the whole truth. The Philistine leaders came to her and brought the silver with them. Then she let him fall asleep on her lap and called a man to shave off the seven braids on his head. In this way, she made him helpless, and his strength left him. 
Then she cried out, Samson, the Philistines are here. And when he awoke from his sleep, he said, I will escape as I did before and shake myself free. Here it is, the hardest line in his story. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And in these verses, Samson now finally, fully reflects the state of the nation of Israel. Miles Van Pelt notes, he says, Samson is enticed and seduced by the woman he loves, an apt characterization of Israel, who has been enticed and seduced by the gods of the surrounding nations. See, as we mentioned last week, the first words out of Samson's mouth was that he saw something that pleased him. He was led by sight and not by faith. And after his capture, they gouge out his eyes. I said it a moment ago. I'll say it again. Sin will always overpromise and underdeliver. So here's what happens next. They gouged out his eyes. They put him in chains and they force him to work in a prison. But then something begins to happen. His hair begins to grow back. And so after some time, again, we don't know how long, the Philistines call everyone to meet at the temple of their God because they want to throw a party. Why? Because they caught Samson. And in their mind, this proves that their God is greater than Samson's God. But can I tell you something? God's strength has never depended on the faithfulness of men. So listen to what the Bible tells us. At the end of his story, beginning in verse 25, I forgot to put the slide up, so I'm going to read it and you're just going to have to follow along. When they were in good spirits, they said, bring Samson here to entertain us. So they brought Samson from pit prison and he entertained them. They had him stand between the pillars. Samson said to the young man who was leading him by the hand, because remember, his eyes are gone now. Lead me where I can feel the pillars supporting the temple. So I can lean against them. The temple was full of men and women. All the leaders of the Philistines were there and about 3,000 men and women were on the roof watching Samson entertain them. Some estimate that it was upwards of five to 7,000 people present. And he called out to the Lord, Lord God, please remember me. Strengthen me, God, just once more. And with one act of vengeance, Let me pay back the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson took hold of the two middle pillars supporting the temple, leaned against them, one on his right hand, the other on his left. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. He pushed with all his might. and The temple fell on the leaders and all the people in it. Those he killed at his death were more than those he had killed in his life. Then his brothers and his father's family came down, carried him back, buried him between Zorah and Eshtol in the tomb of his father Manoah. So he judged Israel 20 years. Now i got to be honest with you, church. Samson's a hard one for me. He's a hard one for me. Samson is a man that was driven by sight, yet the Spirit of God worked wonders through him. Samson was easily deceived by the things of this world. He does not appear to be the type of judge like we saw at the beginning. I know it's been a minute, but you put Samson next to Othniel, and Samson doesn't hold a candle to this man when it comes to integrity. Doesn't doesn't come close when it comes to character and righteousness. And yet, for some reason in the times of greatest need, 
Samson always leaned into the strength of the Lord for his deliverance. But here's where it's hard for me. Just being honest with you. It was harder to study Samson than I thought it was going to be. Samson may very well be the worst of the judges. But he makes it into the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. In fact, the worst of the judges are the only judges named in Hebrews 11. Gideon, Samson, and Jephthah as pictures of faith. While the best of them, Othniel, Ehud, and Deborah, are absent. And all I'm left with, church, is that if they made it in, it couldn't have been based on their merit alone. Because they were insufficient as deliverers. So it points me to this truth. There has to be a better deliverer. Listen to me, church. That's the good news for us. Because the Bible tells us as easy as it is to judge Samson for his failures, you and I are no different. And the problem is, like Samson, we don't possess a bright enough light to overcome the darkness on our own. But there is one who does. In fact, Samson's story forces us to remember the light of the world. Because where Samson gives us a picture of what happens when a little light is overcome by a dark world, Jesus paints a picture of what it looks like when darkness, darkness encounters the light of the world. And Samson came into this world as a little light, an insufficient light, but Jesus would come as the perfect light. Now watch this. Like Samson, he too would have a miraculous birth. Like Samson, he too would serve as an example of some kind for the nation. Like Samson, he too would be sold for pieces of silver. Like Samson, he too would breathe his last breath with arms stretched wide. Only as Jesus died, he wasn't crying out to God for vengeance. He was crying out for mercy. And like Samson, Jesus died among those who deserved to die. The man on his right and the man on his left. But what makes Jesus' story so different is that while Samson was placed in a tomb that belonged to his father and there his body stayed in darkness, Jesus was placed in a borrowed tomb and three days later he rose to life. And in his resurrection, the words of Jesus himself ring true. I am the light of the world and anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. And then in 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Here it is. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all our sin. So all I'm left with is that Samson indeed may have been the worst of them. But the blood of Jesus is so strong that even the worst of them can be cleansed from their sin. And the only reason Samson made it into the hall of faith, despite his sin and struggle, despite his rebellion and unrighteousness, is that he placed his faith in a God who always delivers and has the power to back it up. And while Samson was insufficient, Christ is more than enough. And this morning, church, our hope is that if we have placed our faith in the God who is light, then we can have a confidence that no matter how dark it gets, darkness will never overcome. But there's even more. Because if you are in Christ this morning, not only do you have that hope, but you have a purpose. Peter says it like this in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, or 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. Here it is. 
so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, here's the thing. We will always have an insufficient light. But in Christ, we don't have to give off our light. We get to be a reflection of his light to a world that so desperately needs it. We are meant to be light in a dark world. And Jesus knew our light was insufficient. So his light became our light. And oh, church, how the world needs to see the light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. God, we thank you that when we are insufficient, God, you are more than enough. That when we falter and when we fail, there is a deliverer whose grace covers a multitude of sins. And God, we thank you that in Jesus, not only do we have renewed hope, but we have a purpose. And so my prayer this morning, God, is that we would let our light shine, that we wouldn't hide it, we wouldn't cover it up, but that we would reflect your light to a dark world believing that your light is strong enough to drive out darkness. God, give us grace to love you well. In Jesus' name, amen.